Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this is a huge, huge one for me. I love this man. I've been wanting to make this happen for years. It is the Australian legend, singer-songwriter legend Paul Kelly. So Paul Kelly is commonly referred to as like the Australian Bob Dylan. Personally, I prefer Paul Kelly to Bob Dylan. He's just one of those guys like Bruce Springsteen or John Mellencamp or Dylan or whatever who's been at the top of his game, kind of like a Neil Finn, top of his game as a singer-songwriter for 40 years now or more. And uh, I love what he does. He's one of the greatest singer-songwriters in Australian history. Well, he's he has so many albums, it's difficult to even know where to begin, to be honest. But... At this point in his career, he is sort of reimagining and curating older songs of his for re-release. And they're under the name Mixtape Compilations, and he puts them out by theme. There's poetry, people, drinking, rivers and rain, and time. So maybe if you're new to Paul, this might be the best way. Pick a theme and then listen to like 20 or 30 songs that relate to that theme. That's what he's really into now, and there's more of these coming. So we talk about this. We talk about just his whole career, when I discovered him, how he does this, his relationship to Neil Finn, and uh, everything else. I discovered him, as most Americans might have right here, with Dumb Things, which was in the late 80s. And uh, I've been paying attention ever since. People often ask me if I ever get nervous. Uh, I was actually nervous for this one. And I never get nervous because I get ner- because I want it to go well. I don't want to give him what he's always heard a million times. And, uh, and I just have so much respect for the man that I want this to go well. So hopefully it did. He called me from his home in Melbourne. Oh, it's good to see your face. Thank you for doing this with me. Oh, my pleasure. First and foremost, Paul Kelly, who, wow, I, just saying your name. I'm all goosebumpy. I just think you're the greatest. So, And here's when I discovered Paul Kelly. The fall of 1988, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, me and my best friend, Brandon Nordgren, our, my mom takes us to go see the Smithereens in concert in Salt Lake mm-hmm. City. And uh, the opener, well, first opener was a local band called the Gamma Rays, who did a lot of like Violent Femmes covers. It was weird. Yeah. And then the next band was Paul Kelly, the Messengers, who I had never heard of before. And uh, so, but I really am enjoying the show. I'm really into it. And you and I both had hair back then. And uh, <laughs> I still remember um, hearing Under the Sun and that, and it starts to kind of rev up the last minute or two or just kind of epic. And I remember you just your hair going and the black and the and I, if I remember right, you had like a gold guitar. Still got okay. it. And uh, it was so powerful. And I didn't. And once you played dumb things, I recognized you because I had heard that song on the radio. That did pretty well in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And the next day, I ran out to the music store and I bought Under the Sun on CD. And back then, the CDs came in long boxes, and I had the long box, the original long box, with you in the sunglasses, not the yeah. one of the you know old concert poster or whatever. I had your the long box of that CD in my locker in high school, uh, for you know all of high school. So anyway, from then on, I've been paying attention to Paul Kelly because I realized you were special that day. Do you have any memories of what was the? Why was that the moment of like we're gonna? We're going to try and break Paul Kelly in America. In America. Oh, that was um. We just under the sun uh, was a uh, we had a record before that called Gossip, which was the first one that came out on A and M Records in the states. And under the sun was the second one. And A and M had um, we'd made you know we'd made Gossip at home um, in um, in Sydney where I lived then in Australia, and A and M got interested and they decided to put it out. They put out they put out a cut down version of that because it was originally a double album, but they put out a 15-song mm. version. And they didn't have much input into into that record because um, 
it was just already done. And none of the sun was the next one that we'd done, but that was, that was also done in Australia. But they were sort of a bit more, bit more um, geared up to support us, and they, you know, we ended up getting the support for the smithereens. So we did, you know, a few weeks of date for the smithereens around the states. Very good memories of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Salt Lake City. Yeah, um, it's a pretty memorable place, Salt Lake City in Utah. So going there, I always seem to seem to remember it. Um, uh, funny you mentioned that guitar because that's that's uh, I still got it. It's, it's the only electric guitar I have, and it's the one I always play. So I've been playing it. It was the very first electric guitar I bought, and from my first royalty check, wow. I remember I bought it in 1988. Oh. And I got you know first time I got a royalty check that was actually some decent money. No, I went to the I went to a store on Parramatta Road in, in Sydney. Um, around the corner from the studio where we were recording, and um, just saw it on the wall, and it uh -huh. was—I just liked the look of it, and, yeah. uh, and I played it. it. Sounded good. I'm one of those people that make all guitars sound the same, so doesn't <laughs> uh, really matter what I play. Although that is a beautiful guitar, and it I only was. found out later. Very rare guitar. It's a Les Paul signature. Mm. And he made. You know, we had a you know a guitar tech working for us in the states a year or two later, and he. He, he sort of looked it up and they only made them between 71 and 75 and then they made 900 in the first year and that obviously didn't sell and then the dwindling numbers over the next few years so mm -hmm. people you know guitar guitar heads see that guitar and um, get very interested wow. yeah it's my it's my guitar it's just i love it i i'll never forget it i just uh you the the you just rocking out so hard all of us were in that room to um under the sun with you bashing away on your gold sounds like it was new if your first big royalty check that afforded you a guitar was in 1988 and that's when i saw you in concert that must have been a fairly new guitar at the time yeah it would have been a new a new guitar i mean obviously new guitar for me but it wasn't a new guitar it was um yeah something yeah. it was i think it was a 73 73. wow oh i love those days and uh i'm curious i've been able to see you several times whenever you come through i live in denver now and uh thankfully you come in you come through here quite a bit I mean, and uh so i've seen you i don't know three four five more times on top of that and um in fact one of the yeah. times it was in the early 2000s and you played the uh in san francisco i was working for tower records at the time ways and means had just come out which was such a great album and you were at the cafe de nord and it was you and Dan, I Cafe believe. Lord, yeah. And I think you played with Shane yeah. Nicholson, open for you, who's fantastic himself, right? And I have a bootleg, That's two right. bootleg CDs. Some guy in the audience was recording. the, And when he saw that I was a big fan, he said, give me your email address and I'll send these to you. Why is it that you have been able to maintain at least a cult-like fan base here when people, I've had Tim Finn on here, I've had Mark Seymour on here, they're both fantastic too, but they don't tour the states. But you've got it; you can do it. Why is that? Uh, I know one could want to. I, I love playing in the states, and um, I, I don't really know. I think I've, I've always tried to keep things in, interesting for myself in terms of the way I write songs. I'm always trying to find new ways to write. In the end, you know, I probably a lot of my songs are sort of they're limited by you know just what I do and what I can play and sort of my own natural tendencies, but um, I just I've, I've always managed managed to keep writing songs. I don't write very quickly, but I just stick at it, I guess. And there's enough people over here know, who you love know, you. I know, build up an audience that always um, know that it's not going to be the same every uh -huh. time I come out and play. It's not not going to be the same as the the last show or the last time. So people know that that they can they can come to expect the unexpected and always yeah. find something fresh. I mean, I think as a writer, you're always trying to surprise yourself and keep things fresh. So if you manage to do that, an audience will come with you because they audiences want to be surprised too. Okay, I'm going to ask you about all the new mixed CDs that are coming out, these compilations. But before I do, you touched on something a second ago. And when I press on this with some other guests, I get some interesting stories. Why was Salt Lake City a particularly memorable or interesting place for you? Oh, I just, you know, I think geographically and scenically. Oh, okay. It, it, it's amazing and um and and also uh you know sort of strange to us we don't there's not a really big mormon culture in australia at all so you know seeing the big temple and 
um, just a city you sort of heard about. A little bit mythical, I guess, to us. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I've had uh, I've got some American cousins and some, some lived in um, Park City for oh. quite a few years, not far away. Yeah. So, you know, I've been to visit and, you know, stayed over and been to visit them as well. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, so Sometimes when I when I ask, they'll say, "Yeah, I I, um, I remember one time David Sterry from Real Life was on here, and we were talking about that. And he's like, "Oh, Salt Lake City, some of the craziest parties, the wildest people I've ever known were in Salt Lake City," and it was because of you know it's it's probably like you with Catholicism. You don't people don't just leave Mormonism; they 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 leave, but they also can't leave it alone. And so mm. you don't just casually walk away. You stomp your feet and rebel and, you know, out of anger. And, and sometimes that leads to a lot of rebellion. And I wondered if yeah. that's what you were sort of faced with. Uh, yeah, since a little bit of a, a wild edge to the place and the, yeah. the people that come to the show. So, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a feeling in the air. Yeah. Yes, yes, I could see that. Okay, let's talk about the new stuff because I think it's interesting that your career and your canon of music is so dense it could be overwhelming and yet here you are releasing these mix tape compilation albums poetry people drinking rivers and rain and time and it feels like between these and like the a to z sh a to z i should say in your terminology a to z shows <laughs> yes and like the bluegrass albums and stuff like that that you've been sort of recurating your history in a way what brought you to do that? Is it just you've been at this for so long, this is a new thing to kind of get you excited? Well, yeah, you're right to make the link with the A to Z shows because that was, you know, they started in 2005. And at that time, I was aware that, um, you know, just doing shows with the band and pl playing, uh, doing tours, that you could often fall into this rhythm of playing, you know, the same the same songs most nights. So, you know, you, you, you throw things around a bit and bring songs in and out. But... Um, I, we were doing shows and there was lots of, lots and lots of old songs or songs that, you know, had, sort of hadn't touched for a long time just because it was hard to fit them into a, a set on a regular basis. So I thought I'll see if I can do this doing a series of shows where I, I play 100 of my songs in alphabetical order by title over four nights, 25 songs a night. And um I, I did that sort of by myself mainly, but then also with my, my nephew, Dan Kelly, who you mentioned before. We often tour the States together just as a duo. It was a lot of work rehearsing, just remembering those songs again, 100 songs again. You know, I'd written them, but I hadn't, some of them I hadn't played for a long time. And we, we, we worked and worked and got the show up and running. And then I realised, you know, the, the audiences were really excited about it because, they, you know, they, they, they all started, you know, some would come one night. The first night would be songs from A to D, you know, type, and next night E to L or something, then M to S and then and on to the end. So some people came all four nights. Some people, you know, picked a couple of nights. People, and we were doing like small places and uh, and the audiences were sort of all talking to each other and this little sort of um, camaraderie sprung up. And, and um, it also sort of broke, for me, it broke the chains of, uh, an, it just helped, temper or set an audience's expectations that an audience would come along and they think, think you know, so we, there's songs here that are popular here in Australia that if I, I play here that the audience will expect to hear, like, mm -hmm. To Her Door. They got married early Never had no money Then when he got laid off They really hit the skids He started up his drinking Then they started fighting He took it pretty badly She took both the kids She said, I'm not standing by To watch you slowly die So watch me walking at the door, at the door, at the door. She said, Shove it, Jack, I'm walking at your fucking door. She went to her brothers, got a little power. He went to the battery, he stayed about a year. 
by setting up these parameters or the, these guidelines for the show, the audience would come along. If they come along night one, they're not going to hear it to her door because that's a tea song. So <laughs> it's already sort of that's already you know it sort of fr frees us, frees me up because I'm, I'm, you know, we're just sticking to. Uh, I've just got twenty five songs and in this order. So so that was, and then of course that turned that really had a whole lot of un unintended effects, uh, mm -hmm. good ones for me because. We ended up recording those shows live and then put out a record, you know, a box set of the recordings. It had eight CDs um, at that time. CDs, yes. Mm -hmm. I still Anybody collect CDs. CD? Um, <laughs> I still do. Uh, and then I went, to, you know, I sat down, I remember, I better write some liner notes for this um, box set, set on these songs. And I started with the first song, which was, of course, was Adelaide, mm -hmm. an A song, my hometown. And I wrote, I started writing and I wrote about a page and a half on Adelaide. Um, and then and, and, and the, the light flashed in my head. I said, oh, maybe this could be a book. Mm. So um, it's just as well, you know, I, I didn't come from Wangaratta because uh, I probably wouldn't have, you know, got to that point, got to the W quick enough. But <laughs> I got to the, yeah, Adelaide. <laughs> Adelaide was the first, you know, the first song I wrote about and I wrote a page and a half. thought, oh, I'll just keep going. And finally I started telling stories about the songs or sometimes it was very quite tangential um mm -hmm. and and I, ha I could write in different styles i could write you know sort of tour direct stuff i could write musical essays i could you know have fun with it make make lists about other songs that i thought mm -hmm. were related to the songs to my song mm -hmm. so i had this beautiful sort of structure the the alphabet which is very fixed and within that i could be free to write very freely so i ended up sure. writing a memoir called How to Make Gravy. Mm -hmm. And that went, that's about 500 pages. We, we included the lyrics, but right. so that, that, um, that sort of opened up a whole lot. And, you know, the A to Z shows I've returned to from time to time. Yeah. And these, what I call, you know, like themed, themed albums, co collecting my songs around themes. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, making what I, I call a mixtape. Yeah. Uh, it's the same same principle and it's the same it's the same sort of impulse driving that so oh, here's a way to get people to listen you know get i guess you know allow people to discover songs they you know they might not have because just just as like bands and artists get in their own habits of you know maybe you know playing a set they know that works each night so do audiences get into their own listening habits so Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people might, might just go and oh, listen to, you know, the, you know, the greatest hits or some kind mm -hmm. of collection. Or they might have a particular album that they like to go and play. But um, and then I know, of course, you know, very serious and deep fans will sort of be very, be quite familiar with the whole catalogue, you know, which mm -hmm. is quite a few hundred songs. But it's a way of sort of introducing songs to people that they might not have considered. So, and it's just a fun a fun thing to sure. do like a mixtape is always a fun thing to do so yeah that's how it started and again this is it's sort of now having these unintended consequences again because we started to do shows based mm -hmm. on the records i've just just last night i've um finished a, a show two nights in melbourne doing uh, shows around the um theme of drinking the, the drinking scene really oh so right. that's gonna yeah. be okay so it, similar to the a to z shows there will be these themed mixtape shows yeah we've already done one called time we did one the time the time show last year which was the very first mixtape i did mm -hmm. songs related to time and um then drinking's the one we just sure. chose drinking it's this festival the festival people suggested why don't you do this drinking one so yeah it's such great fun and all the band is playing you know we again we're learning songs that some of the current band had never played before so that's you know, wild it's really sort of um exciting for us uh we're going to do another you know another theme show later in the year so good we sort of it helps us the band and i build up this repertoire of songs sure keeps it fresh yep. yeah do you curate these yourself and i ask that because like for instance i remember i have this two disc lou reed greatest hit cd new york city man and he picked the songs himself but critics often feel like artists themselves don't always have the best view of their own best work they might because they're sick of a hit or they're sick of a particular song that's big, they might 
swap that out for something that doesn't mean as much. Did you collaborate with anybody or get advice from anyone on what songs needed to be on here? Or was it solely your vision? I guess it's sort of a bit of both that, that answer. I'm pretty collaborative. So, yeah, I always seek opinions from my band and people I work okay. with and with a good relationship with the record company and uh, the team and my management team. So, yeah, we a lot of discussion. Okay. Um, but yeah, in, in the end, I'm, I'm the one that, that, that picks them. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not shy of picking. If, I'm not going to not put the popular songs on. Okay. They're just because I'm sick of them or anything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, don't re- I don't really get sick of that. The popular songs anyway. They're they're always Good. fun to play. Well, and it's interesting because some songs are new versions. Some songs are live versions. For instance, one of my favorite Paul Kelly songs is "From Little Things, Big Things Grow." Little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Once they had gathered the wealth of the land Daily oppression got tighter and tighter Gringy decided they must make a stand They picked up their swags and started off walking At Wadi Creek they sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much but it's sure gone And the live version that's on the People compilation, someone, I've only streamed it, so I don't know who the female singing backup with you is, but she's wonderful. And I love that you included that version on this compilation. Who is she and like, why did you feel like that was the version that needed to go out there? Well, there's two questions there, but first of all, um, there are a couple of women singers on that. We had a bit of an all in at the end uh, from the concert, but there's a very distinctive voice, a lower voice. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yes. She is Emma Donovan. Okay. And um, uh, I think that's going to be a good discovery for you. Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. She's made a couple of records over the re- recent years. Really great okay. records. Really great records of a, of a singer with a band. Okay. Listen to Pink Skirt as a starter. Song about her grandmother. Ooh. Yeah, she, she's great. She, she's quite a force uh, in music around the country. Uh, and, yeah, so the, the second part of the question with, it, with each, each of these um, compilations, you know, they're all, obviously generally they're all catalogue songs or the older songs, but, but I've been trying to uh, keep the principle of having a couple of new recordings on each each one or sometimes even a new song. So mm-hmm. and a, another another way of keeping it fresh. It's not just sure. everything old um, recycled. We just, there's a few, couple, of, couple of new things on here too if you're in, interested. Okay. So yeah, that was a recent, a recent version of, from Little Things, Big Things Grow, I think recorded in 2019 at a live show with Emma. It's so good. Um, In fact, speaking of songs that sound good with you singing with a female, you and I almost talked five years ago when your Nature album came out. I don't know what happened. It it got scrapped kind of at the last minute, but I was so excited to talk to you about that one because Bound to Follow is another one of my favorite Paul Kelly songs, and that's featured on that album. And that's got another just this ethereal gorgeous female voice kind of ooing and eyeing in the background who is that emma who's that i don't even know i tried to gain on her i knew i was bound to follow i had to follow That's, no, that's Kate Miller-Heidke. She's sort of at the opposite end of the vocal. She's a, okay, she's, yes. She has classical training, so she can yeah. sing um, very high. She's a soprano. She's a soprano. 
but she's also a pop singer and pop writer uh -huh. and also writes musicals. Kate Miller Heidke, then you need to check her out too. Okay. Okay. This is um, great. Tell me about the writing of that song and who decides, is it you that decides, you know what this really needs or some ethereal female vocals kind of angelically flowing in the background is that you that figures that out. Yeah, that was, yeah. This, the song is uh, an Isling song. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. That's an Irish word or a vision song. You know, it's a tradition in Irish music and Irish poetry, Irish writing, the vision. And this, this, this song's one of those vision songs of, or a dream, the woman appears to him in a dream and, and she symbolizes death, which is pretty, I think, pretty obvious in the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And she's like a, a, she's like a siren sort of luring him on. Uh, luring That's a perfect him on way to say to, it, yes. That makes outside. sense. Uh, I, need, I needed an ethereal voice, like a, the song sort of set in this sort of mythical country in a silver yeah. lake. And, yeah. and the, the woman's dragging, you know, luring the narrator of the song into the water. Yeah. Ooh, now it makes so much sense. Okay. And I just, I thought that song was such a highlight on, I mean, the whole Nature album is good, but that song was such a highlight to me and I wondered what the story was. Um, speaking, I got to go back. Speaking of songs that have, that you've kind of reworked like from Little Things, um, on your Smoke album, that is like the bluegrass versions of your songs, what, another one of my favorite tracks of yours, because I just think it's so witty and, in, and incisive, is uh, I Can't Believe We Were Married. We danced in the kitchen on Boxing Day. Thought you swam in my arms to Marvin Gaye. Our Christmas ham turned green by New Year's Eve. Sometimes we see each other on the street Maybe at a hotel or some party We say hello and we have to go I can't believe we were married That we were wed The bluegrass version that's on that album When you make an album like that, do you think do you just pick songs that you feel like trying in bluegrass or these songs you think go really well in that style or was there a rhyme or reason behind it? What was the thinking there? Well, I've actually made two bluegrass records now. Yes, There's another have. one called Froggy Highway after that. But the, the, first, the, the original, I got the idea for Smoke, the first bluegrass album from Tim O'Brien record where he did all Bob Dylan songs. What's that called? Red on Blonde, am I right? Am I, right? I think you're right. Red that on, sounds right. Red yeah. on Blonde. Where he just took Bob Dylan songs and made bluegrass songs out of them, which obviously makes perfect sense because uh -huh. you know, Dylan had obviously very very strong folk roots, and I'm the same. I came up sort of through folk music, so and love country music, love the Stanley Brothers. Um, uh, yeah, when I can still remember the first time I heard this, the Stanley Brothers and the, the hair rising on the back of my head. So um, you know, Bill Munro. Um, yeah. I love the Moving Brothers, so yeah. uh, that, that 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 music sort of deep in my bones. So a lot, some, quite a few of my songs do. Not all of them, of course, but um, mm. some of my songs have have pretty got a, a direct connection to that kind of music. So they can be easily made into bluegrass songs. So mm -hmm. uh, when I heard that Tim O'Brien record, I thought, oh yeah, I've got enough songs that I, yeah, I could do that. You could do that. So <laughs> again, that was a fun thing to do, and we did it again six years later and yeah. you know that's how last time passes that was the last bluegrass record was 18 years ago and oh my gosh people, people come up to me and say when are you going to do another one i think i always think well sure i should do another one but um yeah I just got a bit distracted <laughs> along the way there's always something, to, something else to do it's so funny whenever i think of something that's come out in the 20 in the 2000s my instinct is that it is fairly new it must be new but really, that we've been in the 2000s for t almost a quarter of a century now. It's not that new anymore. But it feels new. It just feels different, you know, more more modern or more something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that's called um, getting old. I think um, you're probably right. You're probably right. Time moves differently. Yeah. I think you might be right, Paul. 20 years go by like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you, too, about um, your views on religion. The reason being... 
I, like I mentioned earlier, I know you grew up Catholic and kind of did away with that. But then Stolen Apples is sort of an album based on songs about religion or songs about God or thoughts on Jesus. And it's such a profound album. And there's God Told Me To on there, which I think is so insightful and sad, to be honest, because it's this depiction of a fictional guy who felt entitled by God to kill people, which a lot of them do. Where do you stand on that? Do you consider yourself even a spiritual person? Grievous murdering cold blood My mission is most righteous My cause is true and just The wicked need chastisement You know it's either them or us mm. God told me to I did what I had to do Uh, I, I I'm not really um, big on the the on the div people dividing the sp spiritual from the physical. So I've always sort of pushed against that in a way. I think um, the physical and the spiritual are all mixed up. You know, um, you know, one of my favourite things to do is to go swimming in the bay here in Melbourne you know, all through the year, cold water. Um, I get in that water and swim, and the, the feeling I have is. It's not physical or spiritual, but it's completely blended. So uh, playing playing music with a band and, and making the sound that you can't make on your own, that's a very physical and a spiritual thing. It's a, it's well said. Anything, I mean, anything you do where you you can't do it by yourself, but you, you need other people to help you do it, that's yeah. that's religion to me. Yeah. I'm a Catholic. I'm not, I'm not a practicing Catholic. I don't believe in God and, you know, the guy with the beard upstairs. Um, but I'm 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 definitely a Catholic. I'm a, culturally I'm a Catholic. I still read, you know, the Bible is still an interesting book to me. I still haven't read it all, but I keep going back to it, just like I keep going back to Shakespeare. But um, you know, that's probably more to do with the language of the Bible and how much it's influenced our, our literature, and just our speech and the way we think. So the Bible's been a thread in, thread in my songs, you know, ever since I started writing songs and it still sort of percolates through. Yeah. Um, those of us who grew up Mormon have a, some of us can have a similar feeling. You never quite, you may not, I, you may not believe the same way you did when you were Mormon, but you just never leave it. It's part of your heritage. It's part of your tribe and your race and what makes you you, you know? One thing I want to ask you about in regards to writing songs, that song starts out saying, you know, my name is John Johanna. I had to Google that to see if that was a real like Australian person or not. But it was, I realized I found out it was a fictional thing. Um, I mean, some of your songs are these sort of first person, almost like diary entries of a fictional character, you know, um, and so even uh, how to make gravy sort of starts out with like, you know, names and people and I'm in prison and I'm, you know, can you make the gravy for me and all this. When you write a song like and start it with my name is John Johanna, is it a character study that you're thinking, I'm going to get into this character, into this person? Well, this, the song is, yeah, it was my response to you know, religious fanaticism, that, that belief that uh, if uh, God, you know, my belief is so strong that it's above the law. The law of uh -huh. God is above yeah. the law of the land. And there's obviously there's been a lot of that around for a long time, but it was, you yeah. know, it was pretty strong, strongly in the air after 2009, 11 mm -hmm. and so on. So that was, was a response to, uh, to that kind of. Oh, that makes sense. Navitism. Um, and the John Johanna, I thought, uh, just John Johanna is an, it's an old folk song, it's, it's not, which has really nothing to do with God told me to. But 
there's little sort of lines from uh, the book of Revelations, which is written by John, you know, John the Revelator. So uh -huh. the book of Revelations is written by A. John, and um, some of that language uh, is in the song, also the last okay. day, so, um, seven, star, seven stars shining in my right hand, you know, the beast, yeah. the beast before, the beast behind. Um, if you're not with me, you're against me. That's that's all there in that crazy, crazy book. Yes. So I just wanted to have a John as the speaker of the song, and John Johanna had a good, good, good uh, rhyme to it. Good feeling. That's good. When you write songs in the first person like that, do you create character studies that go beyond just the song? You know, how do you take on that mantle or that characterization of a person? Do, is it just strumming away along on a guitar and writing it down or, you know, are you like an actor who builds like a backstory for their character and that kind of stuff? Do you get that deep? No, it's usually just on, on the song, but I guess the way the, my way into songs often is from the point of view of a character an imaginary character. So imagining a character in a particular situation. So yeah, I've been influenced by, you know, by short story writers and, and novelists, I guess I, okay. I read a lot. So, my songs often have, you know, sort of people that you can sort of feel and smell and, and see. Definitely. I mean, I was in my, I, I you sort of realize this later that the songwriters I always sort of, the songwriters that hit me hard, but that's re really visual songwriters. And I'm talking about the American ones like Chuck Berry, mm. Lou Reed, Velvet Underground. They really mapped a place and a territory. You can see their songs. You can, you yeah. know, taste the fried chicken on the front seat you can see nadine walking to the coffee colored cadillac you know um you, you can see lou's character going heading up to lexington 125 you know feeling one could do any more dead than alive they're really really vis visual songs not like movie songs and then on the other side of the of the pond you might say you've got mm -hmm. the kinks ray davies and, mm -hmm. uh, oh he's a master you know that so Waterloo Sunset was a huge song for me. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, Im the imagery of he's looking down at people like flies swarming around <clears throat> Waterloo Underground. So I guess those those songwriters, it was pretty much unconscious. They really influenced me. So when I started writing songs, yeah, those I was sort of doing a similar thing, but mm. obviously using places I knew and places around me. Um, and and having these sort of characters that that are real, or you know, that they're, yeah. they're fictional characters, but they're real. Do you feel like sometimes approaching a song in the first person is a stronger, like it works better in certain songs than it does in other songs? Where the, like I said, what, like the, you know, God told me to feels almost like a diary entry, whereas you know something else that's more third person feels like a, like a, I can't believe we were married. You know, you're not naming names, but it feels almost like a little short story, you know? Yeah, I, I did write in the first person a lot. It's probably just, again, it's just a, probably a particular band. I think maybe a lot of people do. But writing in the first person probably helps you to act the song out a bit. I oh, mean, okay, yeah. Sing, I think singing has links to acting. You get mm. singing the song from the character's point of view, and then if it's in that first person, you're right inside the character. That's there what happened with God told me to. I he couldn't write that song in the third person and, and get the get the same intensity. Good point. Good point. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland. And Stella's flying in from the coast. They say it's gonna be a hundred degrees, even more maybe. But that won't stop the road. Who's gonna make the gravy now? I bet it won't taste the same but Just that flour, salt, a little red wine Don't forget a dollar for tomato sauce For sweetness and that extra tang And give my love to Angus And to Frank and Dolly Tell them all I'm sorry I screwed up this time And look out Christmas morning when I'm standing alive. 
Okay, let me ask you this too. We talked. I mentioned about um, how to make gravy. It feels like, in some ways, Paul, that that song has taken over your life in some ways. It's it has a whole life of its own now. Whenever I see you in concert, there's a, you know you can buy a towel with the with the recipe on it, which is just flour, salt, some red wine, a dollop of you know tomato sauce. Well, ketchup, but, was, it's what we call, it's the old ketchup, yeah. True. <laughs> but uh, this thing has just taken over, you know? It's And it's just a few lines in one of your songs. Would you have ever guessed? I mean, you didn't write it, I don't think, with the intention of starting a craze or, or a thing, but it became that. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was written in 96. I was asked to take part on one of those Christmas charity records where people sing Christmas songs. And I chose um, Christmas Must Be Tonight by the band, mm-hmm. Robbie Robertson and the band. And um, it was taken, that song was taken by someone else. So the guy organising it said, why don't you try and write your own Christmas song? I ended up writing that. I don't know how. I don't know how I wrote it. But it, it was, and then I remember playing it to Lindsay, the guy who organised it. And um, it was at that time, it's for the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Salvation, Salvation Army. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, he had to sort of get the song, you know, approved by the board, I guess. But I played him the song, and he 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 loved it. But you know, it was a it was a song. It was set in prison. It didn't have a chorus. Um, and we had, you know, I never never ever thought of it as a as a commercial song or a radio song or anything like that. And I did, you know, I got a couple of little plays that first year around Christmas. Uh-huh. And then, you know, we started playing it live just because it's a really fun song to play. It has all these inbuilt gear changes in it that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, once you start playing the song, the song sort of plays you. We've always felt mm-hmm. that as a band. So it was a good live song. And then, you know, people started calling out for it. And then gradually, so song built up popularity over time. So, yeah. We had no idea that it would be, become very popular. You uh, named your book after it, and it uh, it's just its own thing. I can't. I, it shocks me that that's what it is. What made you decide to write a Christmas story but from the perspective of a guy in prison? Going back to what I was kind of talking about earlier in terms of perspectives, sometimes, I mean, you really nah, feel yeah. like inhabiting the strangest characters sometimes, you know? Well, I, I was messing around at home, and... I sort of said to, to, to Lindsay, I said, yeah, okay, I'll have, a, I'll have a crack at writing a Christmas song. And then I thought, my God, how am I going to write? <laughs> yeah, there's so much, so many Christmas songs every uh-huh. year. There's new ones, there's new verses of the old ones. And it's such a great wealth of material. And I just, I remember sort of feeling, I guess, paralyzed that, uh, how am I going to write a Christmas song? You know, what, why? How, what, how do you, what's the way into it? Then I had the thought, maybe for, if I write about it from the point of view of someone who can't be home for Christmas, mm-hmm. I can I can get a stronger feeling, you know, that someone mm-hmm. so, someone who's going to miss Christmas, that'll be a, a way to get into the song. Then my next thought was, well, why can't he get home? Mm-hmm. And then my next thought was, ah, he's in prison. And once that was like the key. Once I had it, oh, the guy's in prison, he can't get home. The rest of the song wrote itself. And it was sort of based, the atmosphere of the song was based a lot on uh, our family Christmases come from a big family. Eight, eight, you know, I've got seven brothers and sisters and lots of cousins. And we had fairly rambling, shambling uh, Christmases. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that some of that sort of gets into the song. But, um, yeah, it was it was really from imagining someone who can't get there. Okay. I realised later, of course, that that was Irving Berlin's trick in, you know, that greatest Christmas, the biggest selling Christmas song of all time, yeah, true. Christmas. And uh, I mean, Bing's version doesn't have the talking bit at the start, which, you know, a lot of those old, old, old songs had. Um, that's uh-huh. an Irving, Irving Berlin song. And, um, but Darlene Love, you know, I always feel Spectre's Christmas album is a record I play, you know, every Christmas, full blast, yeah. first thing. Yeah. And it's straight out of the blocks with Darlene Love's uh-huh. White Christmas. And she does the talking bit. Uh, not at the start. She does it in the middle, but it's, you know, it's a good day in old LA, orange and palm tree sway. Yeah. It's December the 24th, but I'm longing to be up north. So she is away from the, the place where she wants to be, the place of childhood, the place of family, 
she's stuck somewhere else and she can't be there. And that yeah. was, I, I realised, ah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Me and her on the same page. Oh, that's a good page to be on. I love it. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm, <laughs> we have Patreon supporters, and I tell them who I'm interviewing, and if they want to contribute some questions, they can. Um, I've got a few for you. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Simon Patience wants to know about uh, Keep It To Yourself. Do you feel like that song didn't chart as high or do as well because of the subject matter? And it's interesting that he asked that because, first of all, I think comedy is one of your best albums. And to me, it's almost like a power pop song. I mean, yeah, the subject matter might be, you know, dicey or whatever, but it's kind of a, it's just kind of a fun, upbeat, rocking song to me. But I wonder, I don't know, is it, was there any blowback because of that subject matter? Uh, I don't remember. I just, yeah, uh, I, I remember sort of the circumstances around writing the song because at that time there was a sort of this ethos of express yourself. Great, obviously a great song called it. Express Yourself by the 103rd <laughs> Street Band. Um, but there was, yeah, I, I, again, it's one of those things that have, you know, there's so much self-expression in the world and um, this whole sort of philosophy of like, you know, you just need to express yourself. And I, maybe I come from a, a slightly more reserved culture was like, no, you don't need to express yourself. I mean, you can you can argue the other side is like, least said, soonest mended. And all, all those old, you know, phrases from probably a, a previous generation, you don't always need to express yourself. Sometimes maybe silence is not a bad thing or I don't remember getting any particular blowback or criticism. Again, it was just a, a fun song to play live. Um, the album of yours I've played the most hands down is Live in 92, just you and the guitar. And um, it's on there. Every every song on there is uh, is so great. I've been sleeping on my own Ever since you've been away You've been moving all around You came home today Maybe you've been with someone You met after the show Keep it to yourself, keep it to yourself Baby, I don't want to know If you're guilty in your heart Just try and hold your tongue If you want to, let it out Baby, save it for a song Cause I don't want you honestly Or descriptions blow by blow Keep it to yourself Keep it to yourself Baby, I don't want to know I know that it, it um, rises above questionable subject matter, but it's just a great pop song, I think. Um, okay, another one from Philip Hopwood. He saw you play at the Geelong Victoria in live in Geelong, Victoria, Australia. Uh, he said it was about 1,400 people, completely packed. What are your thoughts on playing outside of Australia? As I mentioned earlier, I mean, I've seen you a handful of times here in nice but smaller venues through in San Francisco and Denver. Are you able to play? Are there uh, throughout Europe? Are you um, are you able to tour through Canada? Or do you just have like a certain spots where you're especially hot outside of Australia? Yeah, we've probably played the States the most, um, UK, Germany and France. Um, but all, all, all those places I play overseas, we're playing smaller venues to what I do at home. But that's, you know, really enjoyable too. Yeah, we, we'll play, you know, two to 400 rooms and mm -hmm. um, I love those shows. So, yeah, uh, the, the, you know, being, being in music for many many years what the most important thing is is being able to do all different kinds of shows so i like you know we do theater shows and festival shows 
big club shows, mm-hmm. small small club shows, small theatre shows. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all different and keep again keeps things fresh. Uh, one of my other uh, listeners, Scott Stevenson, didn't so much have a question, but he wanted to mention that he saw you in 1997 at the Prince of Wales Hotel in St. Kilda. And uh, Bic Runga was the opener. I love Bic. She's wonderful, too. Mm-hmm. And he said at the end, you guys went, went into a cover of the Beach Boys song, I Can Hear Music. And it was it's one of the most incredible things he's ever heard. Uh, yeah, that's good memories of that. Um, yeah, we, she, I've toured with her in New Zealand, where she, she was uh, huge. And then um, she's, she's toured with, with me in Australia. And, yeah, that's um, we didn't work. I think one of the tours we did West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys. Really? You did? Oh, I got to see if I can find that on YouTube or something. That'd be good. Uh, I, I can hear music. Yeah. Huge fan of the Beach Boys and, yeah. and Big, Big Two. So, yeah, uh, that was great fun singing that with her. You know, here we are talking about, you know, curating your not that you're one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Not that you would need to do one of these, but have you? I mean, I don't think there's like a covers album in your canon somewhere have you ever been encouraged to do that or thought about it you could do one really interesting with all these like obscure songwriters that you love that not that many people even know yeah i have thought about it and um every now and then i scratch scratch out a list but i just just really literally just haven't got around to it i probably just always had something else that's on the horizon but it's definitely an idea uh-huh. The 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 trick of it would be to uh, something like this. You need to narrow, just like what you're saying. You need to narrow the frame. Like Katie Lang did with her songs, songs in the Forty Second Parallel. She just that was chose a great album. Canadian yes. songwriters. So mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you can't just say oh, I'm going to do a couple of uh, an album of my favourite songs. I mean, where would you start and where would you stop? So mm-hmm. you've got to find a way to to frame it. And I, if I did that, I would maybe you know, I would probably frame it with with. Australian artists, and you know, mm-hmm. so I, I have started a, a list, you know, mm-hmm. by um, you know Tex Perkins from the Beast of Bourbon and Spencer Jones, and yeah, there, there's plenty, plenty of songs that that are, that could make a good record. Yeah, do you um, are you friends with Neil Finn? Yes. Yeah, like good friends. I mean, I know you made that. I know you toured that tour together, and you put out a live album and everything like that. But, like, do you guys, you know, exchange Christmas cards? Do you call each other or text each other? No, no, we're not, we're not friends, friends like that. But we've, okay. when we sort of had, had uh, you know, either worked together, and we have worked together at different times over the, you know, the very first tour of the States was with Crowded House. Um, so we, we go a long way back, and every now and then we'll, we'll keep it, you know, they'll, we'll catch up and say hello or email or see each other, at, you know, what, one of each other's concerts so okay it's like uh it's pretty much a long distance friendship i don't see him very much okay but uh, dan you know my nephew dan is good friends with his son elroy and uh yeah so there's a bit of a connection between the families okay i was just curious we all you know australia is a gigantic country and there's only like so many big cities but we over here we're so myopic in america that we just assume all you guys know each other and hang out and you know spend christmases together i'm just imagining like you and tim and neil and mark seymour and you know jimmy barnes and one of the ferris brothers just get together every couple of weeks and jam and (laughs) play poker or whatever you know but that would be impossible i'm sure yeah, of course it is. Yeah, Neil Neil lives in Auckland. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if we go to New Zealand to play, we'll we'll look him up and go out and have, have a drink or have some dinner or okay things like that. That sounds good. Um, yeah, we just did a finished the tour with Mark Seymour was on the bill, Missy Higgins, and yeah, so yeah, we we sort of there's a there's a, definitely a good camaraderie, I would say, and a good spirit amongst artists and bands yeah. in Australia. Yeah. I think sort of, I think it's probably even got stronger since COVID, I think with a sort of understanding that we look out for each other and definitely in touch with each other and support each other. So yeah, definitely. Okay. Let me ask you this then too. I mean, you're commonly referred to as the Australian Bob Dylan. You toured with Bob Dylan a little bit, I believe. Did you ever get to hang out with him or talk with him? Cause I've heard he just kind of keeps to himself. I didn't meet him the first time we played with him in the sometime in the late eighties, but we did some shows with him 2001 
thinking also again a, a bit later when he played when I played with him at second time he um, introduced himself and just said you know well on the first night and said welcome mm -hmm. to the tour and just a br brief hello and um, then didn't have, didn't have much to do with him after that and then um, at the end of the tour he uh, you know, he was listening, listening on the side of stage, and then later on he came up and said, "I've got a present for you." And he gave me a a, um, a belt buckle, from te a Texas belt buckle. You know, one of those big cowboy belt yeah. buckles in you know, nineteen thirty six <laughs> Texas. And it was funny; it was the last show of the tour, so I'd, I'd actually got a book. I'd got a present for him too, a book by an Australian author called Peter Carey, uh -huh. called "The True History of the Kelly Gang," which is a, a an imagined version of Ned Kelly, the Australian outlaw, who's very sort of famous figure here. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had the book for him, and he had a belt buckle. So we had a no nice presence. But apart from that, no, no sit down or no sit down long conversations. But okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that he just doesn't even engage. So that's great. I wear it on special occasions. Of course you do. Yeah. This was a gift from Bob yeah. Dylan. Are you kidding? Yes. <laughs> One last thing. You mentioned a minute ago liking, liking to swim in that bay. The cover of Life is Fine is I there, the color of blue that deep blue on that cover mixed with sort of the golden smoggy foggy sky behind you is that a picture in the bay that you were just talking about that you swim in yes it's st kilda beach that's it uh it was in the summer, summertime so that was uh -huh. a photographer, photographer called steve young very, very good i don't think he did much post on that, it was just really catching the light. He likes like one of those uh -huh. photographers, just like get the right light. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, because I swim in the bay regularly and it's every single day. It's different. The clouds really? are different. Wait, the light's different. The water's different. Um, that's that's the beauty of going to the same place over and over yeah. again. It's different every day. I mean, Melbourne is a great city for, for sky. We have great skies here. Uh -huh. um, for some reason, it's just this ever-changing yeah you know it's interesting you say that paul because if the sky had been blue in that picture it would have offset the beauty of the water in a way it would have taken away from how gorgeous that blue mm. water looked and um anyway i just i've always been drawn to that album well that album too wasn't that your first like number one album 40 yeah. or some years into your career or something like that you finally have your first number one album with that one why? Why yeah. was the timing right for that one? I don't know. There was one, there was a song off it called um, "Firewood and Candles," which got a lot of radio play. Yeah. So that yeah. you know, that gave the record company something to work with. Firewood and candles on a winter Friday night. Waiting for my sweetheart I wanna set the scene just right Wine in the bottles Paella cooking in the pan You're a on stereo I'm a man with a plan Firewood and candles Giving up a lovely life When she knocks upon my door I hope she's got an appetite we're gonna shut out the world, forget about the TV news. Firewood and candles, tonight they're gonna see us through. Prior to that, I had been doing a whole lot of sort of collaborative record called The Merry Soul Sessions, where all different singers sang my songs. I'd done a record of Shakespeare sonnets. There'd been the A to Z record in the book. And the record company, they've got a great record company out here. EMI here, and because uh, uh -huh. I've always supported all the strange stuff, stuff I do, uh -huh. uh, but then, you know, the head of the company at the time, John O'Donnell, because he's a friend also, I've worked with him for a long time, and he said, you know, "When are you going to give us?" He said, "When are you going to give us a normal record?" I said, uh -huh. oh, I don't worry. "And we've got a normal, normal records coming." So I just gradually, you know, had written these, gradually sort of had a little pile of songs. It's, my method is really just to get the band together and record when I've got songs. It's, we don't record like for an album we just record and record all the songs i've got and often they're quite disparate and quite different to each other so i just mm -hmm. I, I have what 
on my computer what's called the odd sock straw. I just put them in there, and then after you know after they start to build up after a while, and then I can start getting the socks to to match each other, or nice. start getting those songs to talk to each other, and think, oh, there's there's the kernel of a record there. So that is yeah, life genius. is fun was the first record that that I think it was also the first record the 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 record company finally had a record of you know pop songs, catchy uh -huh. songs. Um, you, you, nothing too weird, and um, they thought, right, let's go for it. So yeah. I think I'm excited they have they have something to work with. I yeah. love it. What is next? Are there going to be more mixtape compilation? I mean, I can see and I can tell from the way you talk about this, you're kind of having fun with this project. So this could just keep going. You have hundreds of songs. It's um, still open-ended as to how many we do. We've got a plan for the next one. The next one's going to be Families. Oh, good. Um, okay, that'll make that'll be make three this year, three last year. So there's a few more. Definitely, you know, weather could be one. Yeah, weather's a lot in my song. Sure, I mean, I've got we've done rivers and rain, but you can do it one one with just shores. Uh -huh. another, you know, shores, beaches, oceans. Sure. Um, so there's there's still a bit to play out there, I think. Yeah. While you are compiling these, do you also have new songs for a new album in your digital sock drawer on your computer that will see the light of day sometime? Or are you heads down in this for a while? Yeah, no, there's there's quite a few few songs in the odd socks drawer at the moment. So, um, but it's been a really busy couple of years. So uh, I'm not sure if I want to put a record out next year because I know that's a whole lot of work associated with that. So. I will get the band into the studio uh, later this year or early next year and then make a record from that because I'm pretty, we're sort of two thirds of the way to a record already. And okay. that'll, that'll either come out late next year or early to 2025 and then off we go again. So, yeah, there's it definitely, all over. there is a, you know, a, a long term plan and a record that's, that's um, close, close to being done. Okay. Oh, I can't wait. Anything Paul Kelly does, I want to know about it because I love it. I have one last personal question. Tell me what the room looked like where you recorded live in 92. Is it a bar? Is it a theater? Is it a, what does it's a theater look like? Called, it's a theater okay. called the Athenaeum Theater, which is in the heart of Melbourne, in the, okay. in the city. Um, it's about eight or 900. It's one of the, really a great theater because it's got the audience, some of the way, you know, it's rake or there's a there's a downstairs in the balcony, but the balcony feels really close to you, so it's mm. a, it feels very intimate. So okay, it's, it's really good for the, that kind yeah. of show. It feels even smaller than that. When I listen to it, it feels like you're in a room with like twelve people. It could it just the most intimate. I've, I I love I love everything you do, Paul. This meant a lot to me. If you can't tell, I think you're the greatest, and I've been Thanks. following everything you've done. To the best of my ability, since I saw you do dumb things opening for the Smithereens in 1988, and it rocked my world. Thank you for being you. You're a genius. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it, and I uh, hope there's more to come. All right, there you have it, the great Paul Kelly. If you weren't that familiar with Paul, I hope you all heard some things in here that tickled your fancy. I love the man. I just think everything he does is so quality. Back in the 80s, it was kind of more power pop, kind of rockier, and then it gets, oh, with age, obviously it mellows out, and there are literally tons of albums out there to choose from, and a lot of them, like these theme compilations, are reimaginings of old songs, so even on an album where you think you know every song, maybe this time they're done bluegrass, maybe this time they're done acoustically, maybe this time they have female backup singers and they didn't before. You just never know, because Paul follows every whim that he ever gets, and bless him for it. Now, I uh, I mentioned early on in this interview an album from the early 2000s of his that I really like called Ways and Means. It's a double album. This is a song off that album called Oldest Story in the Book. You can pretty much, though, start anywhere. I mean, if you like 80s music, go to the 80s stuff. If you like 90s, go to the 90s. I think one of my li favorite live albums ever, if not my very favorite, is his Live in 92 album. That's just him and an acoustic guitar and a harmonica. I love it. Now, next week, we are going full 90s Britpop, one of my favorite eras in music ever, 
And we're talking to one of the dominant great bands from that era. That's what's coming up next week. Huge thanks this week to Rob Disner. Our buddy Rob stepped back in again to help out. Thank you, Rob, for being a member of the team. And he does great, great work. You should read his book about Michael Jackson. I think it, I think it costs 25 cents on Kindle or something like that. It is the best. It is so funny about when he worked with Michael Jackson. Anyway, you got to read this. Uh, now, uh, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. That's for the time being. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. Tom and Harry were the best of friends They called themselves the Dharma Buns Lit out from their home and kin With a mandolin and a pair of thumbs Worked side by side all that summer Picking those grapes from the vine Read by one light and took turns to cook the oldest story in the book. Enter Richard and his sister June just before the harvest ends. Richard's guitar knows a whole lot of tunes The Harris starts a picking on the mandolin Down by the dam in the moonlight They play till their fingers get sore When June kisses Tom, Harry doesn't know where to look the story in the book The oldest story in the book